0: Chapter Eleven of *The Honor of the Big Snows*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. *The Honor of the Big Snows* by James Oliver Kerwood. Chapter Eleven, for her. Upon Jan now fell a great responsibility. Meleese was his own. Days passed before he could realize the fullness of his possession. He had meant to go by the Athabasca water route to see Jean de Gravois, leaving Melise to Cummins for a fortnight or so. Now he gave this up. Day and night he guarded the child, and to Jan's great joy it soon came to pass that whenever he was compelled to leave her for a short time, Melise would cry for him. At least Maballa assured him that this was so, and Melise gave evidence of it by her ecstatic joy when he returned. When Cummins came back from Fort Churchill in the autumn, he brought with him a pack full of things for Melise, including new books and papers for which he had spent a share of his season's earnings. As he was freeing these treasures from their wrapping of soft caribou skin, with Jan and Melise both looking on, he stopped suddenly and glanced from his knees up at the boy, "'They're wondering over at Churchill what became of the missionary "'who left with the mail, Jan. "'They say he was last seen at the Itani.' "'And not here?' replied Jan quickly. "'Not that they know of,' said Cummins, still keeping his eyes on the boy. "'The man who drove him never got back to Churchill. "'They're wondering where the driver went, too. "'A company officer has gone up to the Itani.' "'and it is possible he may come over to Lac-Bain. "'I don't believe he'll find the missionary.' "'Neither do I,' said Jan, quite coolly. "'He is probably dead, and the wolves and foxes have eaten him before this, "'or maybe ze fish.' Cummins resumed his task of unpacking, and among the books which he brought forth there were two which he gave to Jan. THE SUPPLY SHIP FROM LONDON CAME IN WHILE I WAS AT CHURCHILL, AND THOSE CAME WITH IT, HE EXPLAINED. They're SCHOOL BOOKS. THERE'S GOING TO BE A SCHOOL AT CHURCHILL NEXT WINTER, AND THE WINTER AFTER THAT IT'LL BE AT YORK FACTORY, DOWN IN THE HAYES. HE SETTLED BACK ON HIS HEELS AND LOOKED AT Jan. IT'S THE FIRST SCHOOL THAT'S EVER COME NEARER THAN 400 MILES OF US. THAT'S AT PRINCE ALBERT. For many succeeding days Jan took long walks alone in the forest trails and silently thrashed out the two problems which Cummins had brought back from Churchill for him. Should he warn Jean de Gravois that a company officer was investigating the disappearance of the missionary? At first his impulse was to go at once into Jean's haunts beyond the Fond du Lac and give him the news. But even if the officer did come to post Lac-Bain, how would he know that the missionary was at the bottom of the lake, and that Jean de Gravois was accountable for it? So, in the end, Jan decided that it would be folly to stir up the little hunter's fears, and he thought no more of the company's investigator who had gone up to the Yatani. But the second problem was one whose perplexities troubled him. Cummins' word of the school at Churchill had put a new and thrilling thought into his head, and always with that thought he coupled visions of the growing Melisse. This year the school would be at Churchill, and the next at York Factory, and after that it might be gone forever, so that when Melisse grew up there would be none nearer than what Jan looked upon as the other end of the world. Why could not he go to school for Melisse? and store up treasures which, in time, he might turn over to her. The scheme was a colossal one, by all odds the largest that had ever entered into his dreams of what life held for him, that he, Jan Thoreau, should learn to read and write, and do other things like the people of the far south, so that he might help to make the little creature in the cabin like her who slept under the watchful spruce. He was stirred to the depths of his soul, now with fear, again with hope and desire and ambition, and it was not until the first cold chills of approaching winter crept down from the north and east that the ultimate test came, and he told Cummins of his intention. Once his mind was settled, Jan lost no time in putting his plans into action. Mookie knew the trail to Churchill and agreed to leave with him on the third day, which gave William's wife time to make him a new coat of caribou skin. On the second evening he played for the last time in the little cabin, and after Melise had fallen asleep he took her up gently in his arms and held her there for a long time while Cummins looked on in silence. When he replaced her in the little bed against the wall, Cummins put one of his long arms about the boy's shoulders and led him to the door, where they stood looking out upon the grim desolation of the forest that rose black and silent against the starlit background of the sky. High above the thick tops of the spruce rose the lone tree over the grave, like a dark finger pointing up into the night, and Cummins' eyes rested there. "'She heard you first that night, Jan,' he spoke softly. "'She knew that you were coming long before I could hear anything but the crackling in the skies. "'I believe she knows now.' The arm about Jan's shoulder tightened, and Cummins' head dropped until his rough cheek rested upon the boy's hair. There was something of the gentleness of love in what he did, and in response to it, Jan caught the hand that was hanging over his shoulder in both his own. "'Boy, won't you tell me who you are and why you came that night?' "'I will tell you, now, that I come from ze great bear,' whispered Jan. "'I am only Jan Thoreau, and ze great God made me come that night because—' His heart throbbed with sudden inspiration as he looked up into his companion's face. "'Because ze little Melis was here,' he finished. For a time, Cummins made no move or sound. Then he drew the boy back into the cabin, and from the little gingham-covered box in the corner he took a buckskin bag. "'You are going to Churchill for Melis and for her,' he said in a voice pitched low that it might not awaken the baby. "'Take this.' jan drew a step back no i fin work with ze company at churchill that is ze gold for mlisse when she grow up jan thoreau is no what you call him his teeth gleamed in a smile but it lasted only for an instant cummins face darkened and he caught him firmly almost roughly by the arm then jan thoreau will never come back to mlisse he exclaimed with finality you are going to churchill to be at school and not to work with your hands they are sending you do you understand boy they there was a fierce tremor in his voice which will it be will you take the bag or will you never again come back to lac bain dumbly jan reached out and took the buckskin pouch A dull flush burned in his cheeks. Cummins looked in wonder upon the strange look that came into his eyes. "'I pay back this gold to you and Melis a hundred times,' he cried tensely. "'I swear it, and I swear that Yamtharo make no lie!' Unconsciously, with the buckskin bag clutched in one hand, he had stretched out his other arm to the violin hanging against the wall. Cummins turned to look. When he faced him again, the boy's arm had fallen to his side and his cheeks were white. The next day he left. No one heard his last words to Melisse or witnessed his final leave-taking of her, for Cummins sympathized with the boy's grief and went out of the cabin an hour before Mookie was ready with his pack. The last that he heard was Jan's violin playing low, sweet music to the child. Three weeks later, when Mookie returned to Lac-Bain, he said that Jan had traveled to Churchill like one who had lost his tongue, and that far into the nights he had played lonely dirges upon his violin. End of chapter eleven. Recording by Roger Moline.